Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go beyond the numbers to find out. Hey gang, welcome to the Weaver Real Estate Podcast with Howard and Rob, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the real estate industry and industry trends. I'm Rob, as always, I'm joined by my partner, Howard. We're both partners with Weaver and Tidwell, the leading real estate accounting firm in Texas. Reminder that the content you're listening to is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute tax or accounting advice. You like what you hear though? Of course you do. You wanna learn more? Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. We release new episodes every week. Check us both out on LinkedIn and on every social media platform, and head over to weaver.com to download show notes and white papers with our content. Brought to you exclusively by Weaver and Tidwell, that's weaver.com. I'm joined today by my colleague, David Nolan, senior manager in our group. We're going to take you deep inside a Q&A on deferred exchanges. We're joined by Howard Altshuler, who's our real estate practice leader, as well as Charlie Anastasia another tax partner in our real estate group based in our New York office. Throughout the presentation, we're going to use terms like deferred exchange, like-kind exchange, or 1031 exchange. They all mean the same things. And as tax folks generally use those terms somewhat interchangeably when talking about this specific subject matter. We want to kick it off very quickly, and I'm going to toss it over to Charlie. Sure. I'll start it right off. If you do me a favor and discuss uh, the three methods of identifying property for an exchange and when might each be very useful. Yeah, so I think I'll uh, jump in and take that one, Charlie. Uh, so first, I think I should mention that once you sell your property, you have 45 days to identify your replacement property. And there are three methods, as Charlie mentioned, uh, for doing that. The first is the three property rule, where you can identify up to three properties. Uh, The fair market value of those properties does not matter. And you'd probably use that if you have a reasonable assurance that you can identify and acquire the specific property you need that suits your requirements. The second rule is the 200% rule, which says you can identify unlimited properties so long as the fair market value isn't more than two times uh, the relinquished property's fair market value. And you would probably want to use that if you're trying to diversify your portfolio or get more than two properties in your exchange, in which case identifying just three isn't probably going to work. And then the last method is called the 95% rule, which says you can also identify as many properties as you want. And the fair market value doesn't matter, but you have to acquire at least 95% of the value identified. I've only ever seen this used once in practice. And that was when I had a client trying to use the 200% rule and they blew their fair market value on one of the properties because you don't get to value that property until the 45 day window is up. And so they had one value and they identified it early. And then at the end, it went way up. And so they had to switch over to that 95% rule. As an add-on to that, one thing I would would also amplify, how you identify property is a question we get on, on a fairly regular basis. Property address, legal description, and identifying those properties to your QI, to the public, to let it be known that you had intended for these to be the specific properties that you have identified. All that's going on in, in Washington and with a lot of changes recently regarding like kind exchange rules, 
can ticks be used as replacement property? And for those that may not be familiar, tick is a tenancy in common. We could do a three-hour seminar on ticks, and maybe we should. <laughs> ticks can be used. However, there is a specific set of rules and factors governing ticks specifically and what constitutes a tenant in common property for purposes of deferred exchanges. The overriding theme of the rules is you cannot make that tick appear as if it's a partnership. So words like pro rata based on ownership come into play. You can't have special allocations, which means for a promoter of a property or a promoter of a tick structure, they can't receive a back-end promote on the performance of that property. They have to take out their fee more as an acquisition fee or somewhat of a brokerage fee. It is possible, but there are a number of complications that make ticks in many cases just strictly not feasible. And I'll say again, the overriding consideration is the tick cannot resemble a partnership. If there are some questions as we get into them on drop and swaps and how you can utilize ticks in order to facilitate exchanges where certain partners in a partnership want exchange treatment and others don't, we can talk about that a little bit more if questions come up. I think actually someone may have uh, been reading your mind a bit, Rob, because I was going to follow up with another question saying, example of a property level partnership and some partners want to participate in an exchange and some don't. How can that possibly be structured so that they, they that the use of an exchange can be used for those that want to use some? And that's going to fall in the sort of the context of, a, I'll say, a, an advanced concept where you would use a technique that's referred to as a drop and swap. A drop and swap is where you have a partnership, property level partnership that owns a piece of property. And let's say 50% of the partners want to defer their gain on a sale and 50% don't, they just want to cash out for whatever reason. A transaction would be structured that would drop that property out of the partnership into a tenancy in common interest. And then the 100% of the tenancy in common interests would be sold to an acquirer the 50% that want to roll into an exchange would roll their tick proceeds into an exchange. The other 50% would just take their cash and move on. Oh, and based on what you just said, Rob, I'm assuming that you would probably advise our clients and, and the like to make sure that when they do work through the drop and swap, they would want to make sure they're seeking advice to be sure that that, that possible drop is seasoned as opposed to a disguise where they're actually dealing with the sale of a partnership interest. That's exactly the issue. You read my mind. You cannot put yourself in a position where it appears that now you're exchanging partnership interests and where you have special allocations or promotes that might be based, be based on. Now you sort of look like a partnership, not like the tenancy in common type of a situation. The other challenge that we see with that drop and swap is a holding period issue. Very often those transactions will be structured such that Day one, I drop the property out to a tick. And on day two, the sale closes and proceeds get rolled into a deferred exchange. We would say that's likely a problem because you need to establish some intent and some holding period in that tick prior to the exchange. It becomes a much more aggressive transaction. And when if you are going to engage in that type of a, of a structure, highly advisable to involve your QI your tax advisor and your real estate tax attorney to make sure that that is structured properly and you understand the risks involved therewith. To piggyback that a little bit from my own experience, I think when you are going to be working through a potential drop and swap, 
transaction and you do have the, the partnership interest or the LLC interest versus the tick interest, you also want to reach out to your state and local tax folks when doing the type of transaction because you could run into yeah. an event where though the 1031 exchange may be favorable, you also want to make sure you're not triggering any transfer tax issues in, in the specific state because of the type of structure where LLCs potentially can, you can sell part of an LLC, but a picture per se, especially like in New York, that's deemed that you own it and that could trigger some, some hefty uh, transfer taxes. So always found that quite interesting. It's funny you should say that some states have even, although the drop and swap may, big may be respected at the federal level, there are states that have nonetheless challenged the income tax benefit of a drop and swap, one of which being California, which as recently as, as 2000, uh, excuse me, as 2020, had begun to challenge some drop and swap type of structures. Hmm. Given we're talking about real estate and probably a lot of the, the folks on the phone have probably dealt with cost segregations over the years on their properties. How exactly does the, does the cost seg possibly come into play with the exchange properties? That's really interesting because last year, for the first time, the IRS released regulations that attempted to define what real property was. In the proposed regulations over the summer, they attempted to override historic case law, which had generally pointed to the state definition of real property, saying that anything affixed to the building or real property is real property. And they came out and said, no, it's not for this case. And I think people were up in arms, especially the cost seg people and, and real estate owners in general, because when the final regs came out a few months later, that language had been completely removed. So to answer your question, yes, you can do a cost seg and have that property qualify for 1031. And to take that a bit further, I think it's pretty interesting that you can also do a 10 or you can do a cost seg on your replacement property. But with bonus depreciation right now, you can only get bonus on that increase in value. So say you had an original cost basis of a million in your relinquished property and you buy a new one for a million five, you can only get bonus on that $500,000 increase. And then there are also some rules around your carryover basis and depreciation elections you can make to either include the old basis in your new cost seg or to leave it alone. I think some people probably would like to know a little bit more around what the required holding period is for the exchange property, especially with the fact that probably some are going to be looking to get an accelerated property through the, through the exchange. And if they're able to take advantage of a sale, what, what, what particularly happens if they sell it too soon or, or how long do they have to hold it? Because they want to get some cash to, to go forward and do more business. David and I were talking about this one yesterday, because this is a question that comes up a lot. And I think if we were stack ranking questions were asked, this one is generally going to be at the top. There has to be a presumption and a demonstration of intent that both the relinquished and the replacement property are held either for use in a trade or business or held for investment purposes. And using an example, the rental of real estate is a trader business. Rental would support that asset being used in a trader business. So how long do you need to hold that, that property and utilize it in order to generate into in order to demonstrate that intent? There's no hard and fast answer. In the 1031 world, we usually say a year is great, two years is much, much better. And again, the can intent change over time? Okay. There are a number of cases. Under, I'm sorry, Howard, I'm, I'm going to mention code sections and cases just for a minute. 
But if you're familiar with sort of like the Winthrop Doctrine and all of the cases that sort of support whether or not you have held property for use as an investment asset or in a, a dealer type capacity, many of those cases talk about how intent can change from time to time, which is true. We just want to create enough of a timeline to demonstrate that intent. And more than one is good. More than two is even better, Charlie. Hey, Rob. So a question that came in from the audience that is along the same lines talking about hold period. The question is, if properties are held in a Texas limited partnership and a buyer acquires the entity, does the partnership remain eligible for property exchanges? Is there a required hold period of the entity before becoming eligible? It could go in different directions. And David, you know, you can certainly weigh in as well. I think the question might be, is this a single member LLC that has been purchased? So I've acquired 100% of ownership interests of LLC that owns a property. It's very common for properties to sit in single member LLCs for legal compartmentalization and liability compartmentalization. In other words, insulation. So in that context, you know, you really are looking through that single member LLC to the property. And I would say the holding period is going to inure to the holding period of the partnership interest. If it's a, a, a multiple partner entity, okay? So let's say David and I are partners, 50-50, and Howard, you want to come in and buy out David's interest. And then the, the day after you buy David's interest, oh, we do an exchange. The partnership enters into a like-kind exchange with respect to a real estate asset. There could be some risk that the service would look through that and say, really what happened was there was a sale and, or a deferred sale of a partnership interest, not necessarily of real estate. So you have to kind of be careful and understand what type of entities that you're talking about when you are, are analyzing the structure with sale of partnership interest. With the fact that probably there are a lot of folks that have tiered structures in their organization and they do a lot of overlapping transactions, what risks could be associated if there's any uh, related party exchanges? Yeah. So, I mean, related party could be entities or it could also be family members. If you're, if you're doing a transaction between related parties, it's, it's best if there's not a true sale. If you're doing just a, a straight up swap, that's really the, the lowest risk way you can do that. But there is now a two-year hold requirement for both the quote-unquote buyer and the seller of each property. If either one of them disposes of a swapped property, then both of them are going to recognize their gain. You can sell to a related party and do a 1031, but you can't purchase replacement property from a 1031. The IRS is going to see that as basis shifting and that'll trigger your gain. Um, and you also have to be careful about trying to use intermediaries to do these types of deals because if it looks to the IRS like you're doing basis swapping, then they're going to come collapse the transaction and say that you, you don't have a valid deferred exchange and you'll be hit with your gain and your depreciation recapture. I know with, with interest rates being what they are and, and people's values of the properties being all over the place, I think some, some are going to be wondering what was going to happen immediately before or after an exchange, if there was any refinancing done on the properties and the proceeds were pulled out, how, how can that affect the, the exchange on both sides? Again, this is something that we were talking about just the other day on a deal in, in place. This is another one we could spend three hours on because we're going to get into a discussion about boot given versus boot received, meaning cash given versus cash received on a transaction. 
and whether or not that refinancing immediately before or immediately after a transaction on a previously debt-free property constitutes a receipt of cash in the exchange. The, the bottom line in receiving cash in an, as part of an exchange is try not to do it because cash exchanged in many cases is going to trigger the recognition of what we call boot, meaning I've gotten something in exchange uh, other than property. And I would end up paying tax on a gain equal to that boot. In the refi before, think about it this way. I have a property that has no debt. I pull cash out and then I immediately enter into the exchange. And I basically have now taken on new debt to purchase my replacement property. Well, in effect, what I did was create a device to pull cash out of that exchange. The service could look at those transactions and collapse them together in what we call the step transaction doctrine, which many folks are familiar with. We have a pre-planned series of events and we are stepping those transactions together and really saying we wanted to get at step number three and we had to go through step number two to get there. So we're just gonna take you right from step one to step three. A Little bit problematic in terms of avoiding boot. Now on the back end, same type of principle may apply, although case law is a little bit more loose on refis following an exchange as it is refis or financings immediately before an exchange. The biggest takeaway is, and many of these concepts go back to intent, do not make it appear and do not plan that any refi prior or after the exchange as part of a pre-planned series of events make certain that there are market conditions, economic and business reasons that necessitated that, and that those are not related to the exchange itself. Planning is really key. It's 100%. You have to really plan these transactions out. Absolutely. You know, you can refi if you defer into an opportunity zone, as long as it's two years after your original deferral, you can refi, take the cash out, and you you won't get hit with any gain. I, I always found that very interesting in comparison to the, the 1031 rules. And depending on what happens with 1031s and opportunity zones, if the opportunity zone program continues to expand, which is you know legislatively what's sort of on the agenda, and 1031s become more restrictive, which as Howard and I were talking about yesterday may happen, but we don't know what new tax legislation will be. We don't. I don't have the crystal ball sitting next to me. Maybe we see more of a trend to opportunity zones from deferred exchanges at some point. One of the other questions that came in was. What happens within the identification period time limits, such as the 45 days, if all of a sudden the, the, the transaction basically blows up? Can, can the people get their money out of their accounts and, and how does that affect them? When exchange agreements are written, one of the keys is that the exchanger cannot have the ability to take custody of the proceeds. Control of the proceeds is no good. If I, as the exchanger, can control the exchange proceeds, it means that I probably do not have a valid exchange and may not have a valid exchange agreement with my intermediary. So it's very common and almost requisite for an exchange agreement to state that the exchanger, once they deposit the funds, will not be able to access them until the earlier of the date at which it is determined that an exchange I should say the later of at which an exchange will not be consummated or 45 days. And that 45 days is is critical because what is it? It's our identification period. So we'll see language that says after 45 days, we know we don't have a valid exchange if we failed to identify property. So let's say on day 46, 
I failed to identify any replacement properties. Can I get my exchange proceeds back? There are cases to support that, yes, now on day 46, you can get those proceeds back. Some agreements, and I learned this recently when I reached out to a colleague who is a QI, may be written such that you cannot withdraw your proceeds within 180 days. And that's going to be more belt and suspenders on the QI exchange agreement to substantiate that it is a valid exchange agreement with the QI. And that's intended not only to protect the exchange or, but not also the qualified intermediary. And I've seen both, I've seen language in agreements written both ways, either at the end of 45 days or at the end of 180 days, those proceeds can come back to the exchange or. What what other types of expenses can be placed into the actual Icon exchange for the users? What's allowed is generally going to be anything that facilitates the transactions. So your broker commissions, your title insurance, your closing agent fees, attorney fees, recording and filing, your QI fees. I think there is some ambiguity around your tax advisor fees. And we generally have our clients engage us through their attorney in that case. And then on the disallowed side, you have prorated rent, security deposits, utilities, taxes, dues, repairs and maintenance, insurance, loan acquisition fees. Um, but there are a number of planning steps you can take to mitigate your boot on that because they are considered boot, which would lead to gain, but there, there are ways to get around that or to mitigate that. Any trap doors we should be worried about that could possibly trigger boot that, that may not be in the, in the normal sense of the, of the run? Well, I think it's to piggyback on what David said as far as valid use of proceeds. There are instances where payment of certain expenses through the exchange proceeds that are not related to the exchange can trigger boot. You can have prorations that can affect the net cash that is pulled out at closing, whether those be you know prorations for ordinary income items and expense items like rent and insurance and things like that. Bottom line, as we've said a couple of times, a 1031 is a complex transaction and best to have not only the QI and your real estate attorney, but your CPA and tax advisor all on the same team aligned and communicating throughout the course of that transaction. Because every issue that we just talked through can come up in any transaction. Well, thank you everybody for taking the time to sit with us. If we did not get to your questions, please feel free to email us uh, rob.nowak at weaver.com, david.nolan at weaver.com. You can also find Charlie and Howard on our website as well at weaver.com. Appreciate again, everybody joining us. We hope you have a wonderful day and everyone stay safe. Thank you.